You're listening to the People's Podcast. Hope is not a goddamn strategy. This is JSC Radio. About four different cars legit sped past the Michigan State Trooper sitting in the median. I just rolled on by doing 40. I had my eyes on the speedometer the whole time. Guess who the Michigan State Trooper pulled over? Now, for those of you who don't know the state of Michigan, Ionia County is just off to the northwest of Lansing, in between Lansing and Grand Rapids. Not exactly a whole lot of my people floating around out there. This officer, and this is about 2.30 in the afternoon, mind you, pulls me over, immediately goes to the passenger side because I pulled over on the, on the right shoulder he goes to the passenger side and sticks his head in the window and just commences to looking around he takes at least 30 seconds before he even really acknowledges me when i'm in the car and finally i just look at him and i just say uh sir can i help you because normally i don't say anything to the cops i had he gets to my door and i've already got the license and registration ready and he asks me well what are you doing here not Letting me know why he pulled me over. Just what are you doing here? I didn't really think. When you think about it, it's really none of his business what I'm doing here. I'm driving. I'm on the highway. I'm trying to get back to Lansing, where I was living at the time. And he asks me a bunch of questions about where I was coming from. Who did I go see? Why was I there? How long was I there? And after a while, I guess somewhat irritated, but still keeping cool, I asked, well, why did you pull me over? And he finally, after trying to figure out the lie, essentially, points to the tassel that was hanging on my rearview mirror. It was my college graduation tassel. I'd gotten that car essentially as a late graduation gift, and I'd had it for three years at that point. And he says, well, you have that thing in your mirror. And I knew it was bullshit, but he couldn't find a reason to do anything, and I wasn't going to take his bait. I didn't get ticketed, I didn't even get warned. I kept driving, but I was pissed. I was lucky. Philando Castile wasn't. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, my name is J. Scott Smith, and this is the 80th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Jay Scott Smith here. I want to thank y'all for all the support from day one of this thing to now. All 80 official episodes plus the half episodes and the specials and everything else. Thank you. Damn it. Thank you. I want to thank all of you who support the show across all the different podcast providers, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher, SoundCloud or TuneIn, Google Play or iHeartRadio, Radio Public, which is a new one, and of course Spotify and Audio Boom, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. I want to thank my man, Awesome Jones, for this beat that you hear underneath you right now. I want to thank my man, Doc Illingsworth, whose music you're going to hear throughout the show as well. 
And most importantly, I just want to thank you, the listener. And I got some new ones little by little over time. And for those of you listening for the first time, welcome. Damn it, welcome. If you've had an opportunity to listen to some of the previous shows, you know that this show goes everywhere. And whether it's gone to the sublime, to the hilarious, to the ridiculous, this podcast is a little bit of everything for everyone. But this is going to be a different type of episode. The landmark episodes tend to be such. If you go back and look at episodes one, five, and all the way through, 10, 15, 20, all the way up to 80, Ochenta, you know that I try to do things a little differently. What you heard in the beginning there was me talking about a moment where I was driving while black. It was from an earlier episode. It was from the episode where I talked about the death of Philando Castile. It's back in the summer of 2016. That was episode 13, 13.5, 13 and a hook. And obviously you can go back into the archives and check every one of these out. This particular podcast is gonna be different. For one, I introduce two guests onto the show in the second half of it. As you see, this is a lengthy one, but it's necessary. With everything that's happened in society and with everything that's going on right now, and you would have to have had your head shoved deep into the sand not to know where we are as a country right now. I felt compelled to do this show to talk about my experience of living while black. Because it's what I am. This show is unapologetically black. I'm unapologetically black. And I know that term gets overused a bit. But when I say unapologetically black, I don't mean loud. I don't mean stereotypical. I'm talking about just living the life of who I am. But it's difficult to do so when you're a black man. No disrespect to black women, but I'm not a black woman. I don't live that existence. I don't live that life. So I can't speak to what black women go through. There will be a black woman speaking to what she goes through later on in the show. There have been black women on this show previously who've spoken to their lies. My good friend Jasmine Duke, for example. Janae Darden has told her story. Lara Witt has told her story. Offhand, Adrian Lawrence and Renee Washington told their stories. There's a reason why I've only had one male guest on this show, and he came as a package deal with with Jasmine, and that's Jasmine's dad. I've been able to tell the stories of people. I've been telling stories of people for more than 20 years. We're going to just keep it real. And this show is going to be a little heavy, and it's going to be a little tough, and it's going to feature some language that you normally don't hear on this show very often, especially when we get into the second half. So just warning you ahead of time. But for the first segment of this show, I'm just going to simply talk about my life being black. And it's going to get a little raw, just like you heard in the intro. That wasn't the first time. That incident I told people about, and I even talked about on this for this story for uh, Mike.com that you probably saw about a month ago. 
that was the wild black issue where my story of being pulled over on I-96 in Michigan, outside in Ionia County, just outside of Lansing, in between Lansing and Grand Rapids, where I got pulled over for doing 40 in a 45 mile per hour construction zone. I wasn't ticketed. I was simply held up and harassed. And there's a feeling of helplessness when that sort of thing happens to you. But the thing is, is that that's not the first time that it happened to me. Far from it. The first time that it happened to me, where I just got pulled over for the crime of being black. And yeah, that's what it was about. So you softies and you and you snowflake red hat wearers who just your your butt cheeks tighten up when black people start talking about race, you might as well get ready to tighten them. The first time I got pulled over by a cop for essentially, you know, rolling while black, I was 17 years old and I was in Detroit and I was driving home from school. And well, I won't say driving home from school. I was driving my then girlfriend at the time in high school. Come on now. Home from school. So this is 1997. And I'm scared as shit. I'd only had my own car, which at that point was a hand-me-down car from my mom. But you couldn't tell me shit. 1996, 1997. You're 16, 17 years old. You ain't ever had a car. You just get your license. Boom. You get handed a car. You don't give a shit if it's a 1987 Mercury Sable. You're going to ride that bitch like it's a Mercedes. And I'm driving her home. And I remember she lived near where there used to be. I'm not sure if it's still there now. There was a YMCA along Six Mile, better known as McNichols. And I'm rolling along. And suddenly a Detroit police cruiser pops up behind me. Now, it's middle of the day, not middle of the day, but it's, you know, middle of the afternoon. So I'm not thinking anything of it. So I figured, let me slide my ass over to let this car go around me. But nope, this car hits the light and starts following me. And I'm thinking, what's going on? I'm driving a normal speed on a pretty traffic filled six mile. This is like four thirty five o'clock in the afternoon. So it's not like I'm bobbing and weaving through traffic, not on the highway. Plus, this is Michigan. Plus, this is Detroit. And this is Detroit in the late 90s. In fact, this is Detroit at any point in time. And those of y'all who are from Detroit know this very well. When's the last time you got pulled over by a cop? Think about it. But I don't know any better. I'm 17. I'm scared of shit. This cop pulls me over. Claims that I ran a red light. And I'm looking around like, what? He claims I ran a red light. And he wanted to see my license and registration and then commences to ask me all sorts of questions about who's this in the car with you? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? And I'm panicking because I don't know what the hell to do. I don't know what's going on. All I know is, is that this cop is accusing me of running a red light and I don't know where the hell I ran a red light. But I answer all his questions and I managed to get out of there. They gave me my first ticket. A ticket I ended up beating, by the way. And the reason I ended up beating the ticket was because, well, the red light that I supposedly ran doesn't exist. Now, help me out here. You pull me over, you ticket me, and I need to know why. Why did you pull me over? Well, the reason you pulled me over 
was because you see a black man. It's late in the month because it was late in the month when he pulled me over. And you need to essentially make up a little quota. And you figure you scare young black man by pulling him over and ticketing him. Now, you could write that off as they're trying to get a quota at the end of the month. That's fine. But think about something else here. I'm 17 years old. At that point, I'm about the same height I am now, so I'm about six foot, six foot one. Maybe 140 pounds soaking wet. I was a skinny kid. And I'm scared as hell. And that's the first time I felt that true heat, that true feeling, that, that feeling of dread. And you don't know what's going to happen when the 5-0 gets out of the car. And mind you, my father was an active duty cop at the time and is a retired cop now. And he told me, ad nauseum, what to do if I ever got pulled over by a police officer. Yet, it didn't stop you from being scared because you just don't know. A lot of black men will describe this feeling as such, where you see those lights in, in your rear view, you see that car creeping off in the distance behind you, lingering behind you, almost like it's stalking you up the street like prey. And oddly, at the same time, if you're a religious man or woman, that's what you do. You pray with a different vow. And it's a level of anxiety that follows you when a police officer does the same. It's kind of that reminder that as a black man, you're always in the wrong place at the wrong time, even if it's your place even if it's your home, even if you're going to a grocery store. See, I got to explain this to some of you who don't quite get this, and I'm going to be very blunt. I told you, this is an episode that is as uncensored as it gets, so the F-bombs will be coming. I tend to stray away from that word on this show, but when, when you go through what we go through, it gets raw. You're always carrying the sense of you don't belong here, even if it's in your own home at your own job, in a supermarket or a shopping mall, a car dealership or a movie theater. You could own the business. You could be cutting your grass. You could walk into a CVS or a Walgreens or, or a Sam's Club or a Kroger or a ShopRite or a Wegmans or a Meyer, or a Target, or a Walmart. And you always feel like you don't belong there. That at any point in time, someone's gonna demand to know why you're here. And it doesn't have to be someone who works there. Too often we've seen it. We're just average random ham and eggers. See a black man walking around in a store. See a black man walking up the street. In some cases, walking in a park with his baby walking up the street with his dog or with his kid, driving into or out of a parking garage, and some ass clown sees fit to call the cops and question, why are you here? That's the anxiety you feel when a cop pulls up behind you and you're black. Yes, I know white people, you get a little anxious when a cop gets behind you too, but your anxiety often comes from, hey, 
Am I going to get a ticket for this? Are my insurance rates going to go up? A few of you might have weed in the car and you might wonder, oh shit, they might pop me. You want to know what the anxiety of a black man is when a cop pulls up behind him? Am I getting home? That's it. Am I getting home? One of the things my dad says to me all the time, to this day, just get home. I'm almost 40 years old, but I'm still told, just get home. That's all I was thinking the first time a cop pulled up behind me in 1997. Just get home. Three years later, this is maybe the most, truthfully, when I did the Mike story, the Mike piece, and shout out to Brittany Packnett and everybody else over at uh, Mike.com for letting me do that. The more ridiculous yet frightening story I have of driving while black came three years later. And I've talked about this story. I've made references to it in the past, but I haven't really gone into a lot of detail about it. So I was coming back from a party one night. Michigan State University, this is February of 2000. So we're not that far from MSU winning the national championship in basketball. This is a Saturday night. It's my third year at Michigan State. Saturday nights were party night. I think the party was... I think it was at Acres. No, 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 no. No, the party was at Brody. Now I now I remember it. Look, it's been 18 years, man. <laughs> I've done a lot of shit in 18 years. It was Brody. It was a party at Brody Hall. It was in February. So it was cold. And I remember driving to Burger King because usually after parties, And again, you have to understand this is 18 years ago. So I was 20. So eating what I was eating at 2 o'clock in the morning didn't really bother me as much. So I felt I wanted to get a Whopper before I figured out what my next move would be. So I I got my car. I remember dropping off a friend of mine who was headed in that direction. And then I went over to the Burger King which at the time was on uh, East Grand River, just past Hagedorn, so on the backside of MSU's campus to the east. I'm heading out there. At that time, that Burger King was open to, I think, 4 a.m. because, you know, college campus. And I figure I'm going to pull through and I'm going to get my 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 usual because I was a fast food eating bastard and I had a usual at every place I went. Mickey D's, the usual, was the number two. The two cheeseburgers, the large fry, and for the longest, it was, a, it was a Sprite before eventually Sweet Tea showed up, and then I just swore that shit off altogether at Burger King. It was a Whopper with cheese, extra pickle, extra mayo, with onion rings, large Coke. You can't tell me that you couldn't go for that right now. So that's what I was going to go do. I was going to go to that Burger King. And then the plan was to either head to Spartan Village, 
to one of the after hours, after sets that was normally happening on MSU's campus, or find something else to get into. At any rate, I get to the Burger King, pull around, make my order, super chill, nothing heavy, nothing major, come around, someone else is in front of me because again, college campus, late night, Burger King. And as I pull up to the window, I just happen to look over to my right and in the adjacent parking lot was, I think it was a quality dairy. Quality Dairy, for those of you who don't know anything about Michigan State University, is a Lansing area. Essentially, it's it's kind of a mini mart. I wouldn't call it a liquor store, albeit they sold all kinds of liquor at the Quality Dairy. But it wasn't just like a liquor store. You get everything from ice cream to apple cider to donuts. They had great donuts. They, you, you could get all sorts of pop. I'm from the Midwest. It's pop, not soda, damn it. You can get all sorts of pop, any sort of snacks, anything like that. If you went to Michigan State, you know what the hell a quality dairy is. And they're not even paying me for this to put them over. They should, though. So I look over to my right. It's quality dairy. Quality dairies are also open 24 hours. And I noticed in the parking lot was a Michigan State University police officer. And he's just hanging out. He's just sitting there. It's like 2.15, 2.20 a.m. on a Saturday night. He's hanging out, kicking it, chilling. I don't know what cops do that late at night. I couldn't imagine doing what he does. But he's sitting there doing whatever. It's on a Saturday night. I get my grub, set it over in the seat, get the whole setup. Because everybody has a fast food setup. Everybody's got one. And I pulled up. Just before making the turn, stop for a second. Nobody was behind me because I'm not that I'm not that rude I'm not that rude jerk who just sits there if someone's behind you. Nobody was behind me. I had the drink set up in one cup holder. I had the I had the onion rings lined up in the other cup holder. I got the the burger properly unwrapped because you know I'm a savage and I'm gonna eat the damn thing in the car. Cause why wait? Because I was trying to figure out the next move. And I get everything set up, got one hand on the wheel, ain't nobody coming. I make the right out of the drive-thru, back onto Grand River, heading back toward campus. And then seconds later, the cop pops his lights on, makes his right out of the parking lot, and gets behind me. Now, I'm not speeding. It's my car by this point. It's now a Mercury Tracer because the Sable died halfway through my sophomore year at Michigan State. And I'm just rolling, not speeding. It's 2 a.m. And anybody, again, if you've been on a college campus on a Saturday night at 2 in the morning, people are leaving from different bars and places. Traffic is not exactly speed worthy. My lights were working. Everything was good. So this cop gets behind me and I'm rolling. And I could tell it seemed like he was just trying to get someplace like I was because he didn't hit his lights. He wasn't flashing anything like that. So I'm thinking, all right, when a cop gets behind you, you have that anxiety. And you just want that dude to get from the, just get from behind you. Especially when you know you didn't do anything wrong. So the quickest way about this is to hit my turn signal, get over to the left, freeze up some room. There was a little bit of space in front of me. Get over, the cop will just drive right on by. And everybody's cool. 
Except I got over. He got over. All right. I drive about another quarter mile. He's still just lingering behind me. No lights. I get over. And he gets over. By this point now, I've rotated back onto MSU's campus. I'm passing the SBS. I've passed the peanut barrel uh, restaurant. At the time, it was Stephen Barry's. I passed that. I remember passing that. On the other side of me, of course, is the MSU Union. I get over. And this cop gets over. So by this point, this son of a bitch is just following me. He hasn't flashed any lights. Still. Hadn't told me to slow down or get over. Nothing. When I move, he moves. And just like that, I've worked my way close to Michigan Avenue now. And I've now rotated back over to Brody, the Brody Complex. I was staying in the Brody Complex at this point. Cops still following me. And I don't know what to do. Because he still hasn't hit his lights. Try one more time to get to the left, he gets to the left. I get to the right, he gets to the right. I pass through the light, he passes through the light. I make the Michigan left, he makes the Michigan left. I mentioned the anxiety that you get when a cop's behind you. I mentioned that feeling of dread when the cop's behind you. That fear, that anxiety, that angst. And I started hearing my dad's words in my head again. Just get home. Because I don't know what this cop wants. He's followed me this whole way here. I would almost rather the dude just hit the lights and pull me over. But to follow me like that, it made me wonder, what was he calling in? What was he trying to get on me? I make that Michigan left. I then loop around. He follows me through there. I pull into the parking lot in front of Butterfield Hall where I was staying at the time. And he follows me there. And finally, pull into this parking spot. By this point, I haven't touched this Whopper. I'm just completely, I'm completely fucked up. And I pull into the parking spot. He lingers up a little bit behind me. And as soon as I make the move to get out of the car, through the bullhorn, I still hear him say, get back in the car. Where are you going? And I'm, I freeze. Because I don't know what the hell's next. I'm scared out of my mind. By this point, I'm 20. Still six foot. About 165 pounds. I had... I think I still had my afro. I literally looked like any black man he wanted me to be. He could have shot me. He could have beat me. He could have accused me of charging at him. He could have accused me of making any moves. I instinctively just put my hand up and step back, hands up and step back toward the car. And then he stops me again and says, why are you here? Because apparently I can't just pull into my place. And I'm freezing. He yells at me again. Why are you here? I can still feel the anxiety a little bit. And it's 18 years later. I yell back at the man, I stay here. I am a student here. Show me your ID. So 
I, I, I pull my ID out. I take a few steps toward the vehicle holding the ID. And I didn't know what the hell ID he wanted, so I just had both my driver's license and my MSU ID in my hand. He looks at both, and then he looks at me, and then he just slowly starts to drive away, making it a point to point the flashlight in my direction. And just slowly until he got to the exit and then turned and quickly drove away. I got home. But boy, oh boy. Needless to say, I didn't eat that Whopper. I didn't eat those. I didn't eat those onion rings. I killed the whole, the whole Coke though, because I was so frightened, and my mouth was dry as shit. It may have barely been forty degrees that night, but I was sweating fucking bullets. Being a black man in this country is operating under the constant sense that you are never where you're supposed to be. Being a black man in this country means you're always in the wrong place at the wrong fucking time. Being a black man in this country means you're not welcome in 90% of it. And you have to constantly be ready to explain why you're here. It's dehumanizing. And that was 2000. That was before we ended up being taken over by this regime of this racist president and his racist idiot followers and his racist administration that demonizes and dehumanizes so many of us, that firmly stands behind the type of policing that I just described to you. Because that's the thing, and you see it with the way that these migrant children are being treated. You see it with the way that all immigrants are treated that aren't white. You see it with the way that black people in this country are treated, whether you're American-born or immigrant, whether you're Haitian or Nigerian, whether you're from Ghana, whether you're from Senegal, whether you're, whether you're from Tunisia or the Sudan or Egypt, whether you're Puerto Rican, and you're not an immigrant if you're Puerto Rican, whether you're Puerto Rican or Dominican or Cuban or Mexican or Venezuelan or Colombian or Brazilian, you're not seen as a citizen. You're not seen as normal. You can't operate under a normal set of circumstances like going to get a goddamn Burger King Whopper at two o'clock in the morning on a college fucking campus. I told you the language is going to get a little bit saltier than normal because it still pisses me off. When that asshole pulled me over five years later, it pissed me off. I've been pulled over multitude of times for quote unquote taillights and different minor infractions yet never getting ticketed. I get followed around stores Oh, but you maybe you fit the description. Kiss my ass. And I have white friends. And I and I've met a fair amount of white people, some of which are more down for the cause than some black folks I grew up with. Let me make this real clear. If you're white in this country, you're guaranteed humanity to a certain extent. Everybody else, especially if you're black or brown, your humanity is optional. And at any point in time, they feel they can strip it from you or just remind you of your place. 18 years later, that Burger King that I went to that night is no longer there. It was replaced, no bullshit, it was replaced by a Starbucks. Coming up after this break, I had a chance to sit down with two women who were integral to the Starbucks video. Yep that Starbucks video 
getting out and going hyper viral. Coming up after the break, I will talk to Melissa DePino and Michelle Sahin. They are the reason we know about that Starbucks video. And they have come together to check a lot of your privilege. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 80th episode of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. We'll be back after this. He didn't believe anything we were saying. He didn't believe the Airbnb app that we'd shown. He didn't believe the, the landlord that we had called and, and the picture we were shown. He, they, they called the, uh, the landlord and got a DMV picture and they showed it to us and we all agreed, yeah, that's her. And the sergeant said, but of course they would say that. And so at that point, it just felt like it, we were, yeah, everything was against us. You're listening to the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? Go, fish that. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. You're listening to the People's Podcast. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. This is JSC Radio. Well, um, you know, people of color have been talking about these everyday instances of racism forever. Right. And to that day, Michelle spoke up first and then I shared that video. And really, that's the first time that I've seen that it's entered the public consciousness and created that kind of a conversation. And to be real, um, we think it's because someone who looks like me shared it. There are not nearly enough white people speaking up. Yeah. Yeah. This is JSC Radio. Now, I told you guys that. Episode 80 was going to be a pretty special one and a pretty important one. Now, the first segment of this show, you just heard me tell my story of essentially driving while black. Well, that's one of them. I've got thousands of them. That that particular one, as you heard, dealt with the wonderful evening where I got followed home from a Burger King by a Michigan State police officer. That's always good. Well, I mentioned that this was going to be a very special show. Those of you who obviously have been paying attention to the news know that a couple months ago, there was an incident out here in Philadelphia at a Starbucks where two young men were waiting for a business associate and the manager decided that would be the great time to call police because they were committing the crime of sitting in a Starbucks while waiting on somebody. Well, at the time, a very important video got out onto the internet. It was tweeted out and I happened to have two of the women who were there that day, including one woman, who managed to send out the tweet heard around the world about the Starbucks video. I'm sitting here in Philadelphia speaking with Melissa DePino and Michelle Sahin. Welcome to JSC Radio. 
first and foremost, before I go into anything dealing with that video, and I know you've been asked so many times about it and, and the whole incident, I want to get to know more about you two because you two were more than just faceless people behind the video and you're also a part of a, you've come together with this organization and I want you to talk about this movement that you're leading first and foremost before we go into anything else. So whichever one of you want us to get started, go right on ahead. Okay, well, thank you for talking with us. We're really um, happy to be here with you. Um, so um, we'll talk about the Starbucks later. Like you said, you know, we've talked about it uh, tons of times. Um, but what's really important is afterwards, we realized a bunch of things. We realized that, um, you know, Michelle, who is a, a lovely young black woman, was the first person to speak up that day. And um, I am a, um, I like to say, middle-aged white lady <laughs> who, who um, shared that video and um, wrote a caption that called out the racism. And um, we really believe that one of the reasons it went so viral was because it was shared by a white person. Um, and then lots of, we did lots of research and we talked to lots of people and we, you know, there's data that says um, the social networks are segregated. We know this, right? Our social networks are segregated. segregated. So if you're white, it's likely that 93% of your social network is white. We also found out from a survey that 80% um, of the white respondents said they heard about the Starbucks incident, but half of them said that it wasn't indicative of a larger problem, right? Okay. Of course. So those things, plus all the conversations we were happening that were happening in our white circles of friends, because Michelle grew up in a, in a white community and most of her friends are white, I would say, yeah. that she grew up with, mm -hmm. um, led us to say like, okay, there are not nearly enough white people speaking up, sharing, and amplifying the voices of people of color. And racism, we know, is a white problem. It's not a black and brown problem. And, and people of color have been fighting racism for hundreds of years um, because they have to, but white people have a choice. And we're not taking it, and we need to start taking it. So our project is called From Privilege to Progress. We're calling on um, white people, white allies to show up against racism and to come together and to speak up every single time you see something. And when you're with a white audience, speak up. And when you're with a black audience, you should listen and you should amplify their voices. Mm -hmm. And I do want to encourage black people to talk about their experiences more because me growing up in a white town, I never felt like I had a voice. I know how daunting that can be to be in a room full of white people and feel like they're not gonna understand me. But at the same time, then you're not um, exposing them to what racism looks like today. And I think that's the biggest problem is that because this is not the 1960s and, you know, there aren't people being lynched in the streets necessarily and people aren't, you know, out with their big hoses, you know, like you're, you're not seeing Although the riots. a little bit, right? No, right, 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 right. I mean, it's, it's there, Welcome but Trump, yeah, exactly. It's there, but it's just, it's shaped differently today. And I want people to know what it looks like so they can be an effective ally. If you don't know what's going on, you can't help us. And growing up in a white school, my black history was minimal. It was almost nothing. Almost everything that I know about black history, I had to learn on my own. Wow. I had to teach myself. Now, now where are you from? Where'd Hershey. Hershey, Her area. Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, yeah. Palmyra, Pennsylvania. It is all white. At least when I grew up, it was almost all white people. 
And but my parents are African, so we there's a lot of pride in my house. But then when you go outside of the house, it's it's you feel something different. When you say they're African from uh, what country? They're from Ghana. I'm from Ghana, okay. Yes. So we have we're Ghanaians are very proud people. So I was having a hard time identifying myself. Am I African American? But like they're treated like shit and I didn't want to feel that you know but being with all my white friends I didn't feel comfortable with them either and I just had a lot of turmoil in my brain for years and years and years and years so been to Africa a couple times and the last time that I went in March something just changed me I feel like I was decolonized in a sense and I just saw the way that, that they were living and I just experienced a different life and when I came back here that pride was reinstilled in me and so I started doing a lot more research. I watched 13th and that changed my life. I could not look at an African-American the same way after watching that. Just to feel, to see what like really was going on, mm-hmm. I, I would look at someone and I would, I would physically feel something in my chest and it hurt. And I thought, to, you know, I went to, when I was in Ghana, I went to a slave castle. I stood where they stood. I watched what, you know, I, I heard the stories and you can't not get sick to your stomach. You can't come back here and not look at these people and be like, they are so strong to have gone, to have gone through that and look at them prospering still. But I think because of part of the reason that they're so strong is because white people are just so bent on tearing them down because they are so strong. It doesn't matter what you put black people through. They'll it, come out of it. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a fight. And it's a fight, a battle that needs white people. And it doesn't have to, <laughs> to work Why with can't you. we live together? To, to, to work together with you. And that's the thing is that, you know, that, that that's why this the, the project from Privilege to Progress, we're asking white people to educate themselves, understand what privilege means. Yes. And that it's not personal, that it's systemic. Yes. And that that what they, they can use that privilege for the greater good, and they can use that privilege to speak up when they see something and to amplify things that need to be amplified in their white networks. Because um, I can't tell you how many people in my white circle who are liberals, progressives, would say things to me like, I never knew that happened until you tweeted it. Or there has to be more to that story. Or, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sometimes I see that stuff, but... I don't know what I can trust and what I can't trust, like what's actually true or not true. But when you shared it, I, I believed it to be true. So my God, like, okay, then all of us should be speaking up. <laughs> We're getting other people to listen. Mm-hmm. And it it sucks and it's part of the whole problem that there are a lot of white people not listening to black people. But if there are other white people that are gonna speak up, then it's going to help. So what was it that brought you to this, almost to this side, I was, I should oh, say. When it, I, I, I can't. Wh- okay. So <laughs> somebody said to me recently, um, I've been thinking about this because like I'm a, I'm a writer and I'm thinking about writing something about it because, um, you know. Because you write children's books. and No, I write, um, I write, I write fiction and I, and I, and I do, um, and I just had a nonfiction thing come out, but. Um, then I write essays, but so I was thinking about this and, and I thought, <laughs> I thought I knew a lot of things. Okay. I, I, I was, I was thinking back my whole past. I grew up in an all white, like I only knew like two black people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like all white Catholic, Irish and Italian area. And I remember 
probably the first thing was um, we watched Roots when I I think I was nine years old maybe. This late, this, this, this late seventies roots was the thing about seventy eight. Oh, we're aging me now. Yes, exactly. Well, that I was a little. You're older you're, than we're, that. you're 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 a touch you're a yeah. touch older than I am, but I do remember roots. Yes. It had to be about seventy eight, seventy nine. I I remember because they, they ran it in reruns in the early eighties, exactly. and this first time I saw it. Exactly, and that was a big. I remember watching that, and then I and then I also, you know, remember my parents both taught in a public um, high school in Northeast Philly, and they had the their. Their students were like a totally diverse bunch, like as if they, because they were in like lower Northeast, I guess you'd call that lower Northeast. So I would go see my mother in her class and she had, she had her one black friend who, <laughs> who worked at the school. Of course. And, uh, who we love. And so, so these were all things, but, but it wasn't, it's, and I also was a high school teacher in Camden, New Jersey. And when I got my teaching degree, I knew I was going to teach in an inner city, so I, I minored in African American studies while I was at Temple so I could like have some understanding. Let me tell you, all the things that I did that are way more, I think, than a lot of white people do, <laughs> I did not actually realize, really, really see my whiteness until the day in the Starbucks. That was like the first day when I actually felt my whiteness. For real, and I and and ever since then, I walk around with probably like one little dot of how you guys might of awareness of how you guys might feel because it's not coming at me, but I walk around and this that's all I see. Like all I see is like I walk into a coffee shop and there's one black person and I think, oh my god, what must that feel like? Like I like I, I like I'm seeing the world through different eyes. I'm like realizing whiteness. I've, I, the first, it's like everyone has that come to Jesus meeting when it comes to, to our blackness, for example. I grew up, and anybody who listens to the show knows I talk about it in order, and I grew up in Detroit. So my first come to Jesus meeting with my blackness was the first time when I played in a baseball, or I was playing in baseball because I grew up a baseball player. Mm-hmm. And our all black team at a Catholic school, but about 90% of the team is black. There's like three, a couple of our pitchers were white guys. We had one white kid who was playing third base out in first baseman is the first time we play in these Catholic league games and we're the only black kids on the field. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that were said to us, and I'm in fifth and sixth grade, I'm not thinking anything of it until it's like you haven't lived until a coach calls you an N word as you streak past him rounding first base. Exactly. I don't use this word a lot on the show, but I have to for, and for instance, that was the first nigga moment that I had where I, that's the first time I heard it said in my direction and it stopped me. To the point where I got to say, I had slowed up walking in the second. I said, did he just, and it, you don't think about it. And that's when you get that first reminder. Because people haven't known, Southeast Michigan is actually very questionably racist. It's like we try to find that yeah. out now. Yeah. And I, I had, that was when I had my first moment. When I got to Michigan State University, it became very clear very quickly that I was no longer in Kansas anymore. And I get out there and it's like now all the Detroiters kind of stick together. All the Flint kids stick mm-hmm. together. The Chicago kids stick together. We're all there. Being the lone black guy in the room is something I'm used to in newsrooms, yeah. in most radio stations, in most places I've covered events. It's a weird thing. I'm sure. And it's, I don't know how that, I'll never know how that feels. It, it's, the, it, it's the strangest thing, and, and Michelle, you can speak, and I'm sorry, you can speak to this too. Being a black woman in, a, in an environment like that is light years different from even what it's like for us, because black men and black women have two different experiences altogether. Yeah. And it's not something that we really talk about amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm let alone in open company. So 
you mentioned you you grew up in just outside of Hershey. I guess if you can give an example of kind of your first black quote unquote experience or maybe one you had when you were a teenager or something like that to give an, an idea of what you dealt with. I actually had, well, I remember in fifth grade, someone said the N word. And my white friend though, she actually was more upset than I was. I was more sad. And she beat the kid up. I remember his name. She shows his up. His name is Kyle. I, don't, I won't say his last name. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where he's living we right her. now. Yeah. Yeah, Nicole Riker, if you're listening, I appreciate you, girl. Yeah, um, join us. But I didn't have it that, that bad. But throughout you know, my school years, I noticed that my brothers had it worse than I did. Some of the same guys that would hit on me, I found out years later, were really nasty to my brother and were, and were racist towards him. And I'm like, how can you like me and want to date me, but you're mean to my, and I think it comes down to just men being men and it was a sexual thing. Like, even that goes back to slavery times where I'm going to take that slave, I'm going to rape her, basically. I'm going to impregnate her, but I'm never going to, it's cool if you sleep with the girl. Won't even acknowledge her in public. Won't even acknowledge her in public. You know, and that was, you know, and then in high school, I, I dated a white boy and his family was very, very nice to me until we were on the outs and then I was the black girl. Oh boy. Um, and then actually kind of forgot about that. And now that I'm like thinking about it, I was like, yeah, they, they were they were really shitty <laughs> once I didn't want to be with their son anymore. And then when I was 23, 24, I was at a club and I was uh, mistaken for a suspect. Now I don't mind, if, if I fit the description, that's fine. If it's a skinny, dark skinned girl, fine, question me, I don't care. But they made me feel like I was guilty. I remember I was so scared that I actually almost wet myself. I'm a 24 year old girl and I'm like going to pee myself because I was terrified. And it's funny because the suspect was, she was apparently like an actual thieving whore. And I'm like, do I look like a thieving whore to you? I look at nationwide insurance. I don't know what what you're talking about. Honey, you look like a thieving whore. I was stunned. I was like, you got to be kidding me right now. So at the end of the interaction with, with the cop, he was so nasty to me that when, it, when I realized that I was okay, I, I said something to him and I said, that was not okay. You treated me like I was, like I was guilty. He got in my face and he pointed his finger. He said, this is your fault. And I go, my fault for being black? I was so, I was fuming. A white cop grabbed my arm, pulled me aside, and she told me that I need to go report him because she has seen him be racist before in the past. And I was like, oh my God. So I went to the police station. You're all these white people who are showing up. You're drawing them to you. Right. So I go to the police station the next day and I report him and they're like, oh yeah, that's not the first time we've had that complaint. I'm like, so why does he have a job? Why is he the lead police officer on an investigation where the suspect is black? And it made me think, um, you know, you try to be like, a good black person. You try to be mild even though you feel fire. You try to not ruffle people's feathers because you don't want to be the Debbie Downer even though someone made a racist joke and it hurt your feelings but you don't want to, you know, you're in a room full of white people. But that's when I realized no matter how polite I am, no matter how quiet I am, I can go to Penn State and get a great degree. It doesn't matter. I'm still black. And that's when I realized I was like, you know what? I got to start hanging around more brown people. (laughs) Because, you know, it was just very, and I was still upset that day because at the club, not many people, almost no one said anything. I'm like, you guys all know me. You guys know I'm not a thieving whore, but no one said anything. You know, it was very, I felt very, very alone. It's like you get that reminder. It, yes. it, everyone gets a reminder. I, I'm, my, my father is a cop, well, retired cop. 
He was a cop in Detroit for 34 years. And he has a phrase or a saying that he likes to tell me when people kind of question where his allegiance lies. Mm -hmm. Because my dad was one of the first cops in Detroit, one of the first black cops in Detroit after the riots in 67. So he goes in 73 and the department had basically gone through this wholesale makeover because you had this largely black city and this almost totally white police force. (laughs) And that's what really exacerbated the whole thing in Detroit. Well, early 70s, they put this call out to get young black men to join the force. And my dad was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. He was working the auto plants, Detroit, of course, working the auto plants. And then he decided to try to join the police academy. And he gets in among the first real large class of wholesale black officers. Plus, they also crossed the first woman who was a police officer in Detroit, period. The first ever woman in Detroit was in his class. And he dealt with hazing. He dealt with the white officers were trying to scare off the new black recruits, leaving them out in the middle of the middle of the night to fend for themselves and flattening tires and pouring sugar in gas tanks and stepping up and starting fights with guys. And my dad told me all this after he retired. He gets right in somebody's face and just said, look, man, I'm here. And if you tamper with my car again, they're going to be doing a report on you after I kick your ass. And it's just like, that's how it goes. So I, people ask my dad all the time, it's like, well, you were a cop for 34 years and everybody and everybody liked him because he worked in the neighborhood he grew up in. Everybody knew him to the point where there are kids who are now well past my age who walk up to my dad and say, I appreciate what you did for me and how you looked out for me. And you did this for me. So they ask him, it's like, so when they ask you, are you a cop or are you black? Do you ever have a crossroads about that? And he looks and he just says calmly, I was a cop for 34 years. I've been a black man for 68. Do you know where my, and then that's all he needs to say, because mm-hmm. he knows. Mm-hmm. He gets pulled up, he's been pulled over. At 68 years old, he's been pulled over. And oh my God. And he's, I've been in the car and he's had to whip out his badge and suddenly, attitude changes. Cop sees the badge like, oh hey, how's it going? Didn't mean to bother you. And they keep going. And my dad sees it all the time. We all had, it's like we have to have that reminder. I've been pulled over, I've been followed around, I've been followed around stores, I've been characterized as the angry black man in newsrooms. Oh. Can I say something to white people, please? <laughs> Absolutely, the, the, the mic is yours. Okay, so all these things, if you're, if, hey white people, white friends, if you're listening, <laughs> and I hope you are, look. These experiences, I'm just learning, but these experiences that these guys go through where, you know, pulled over or, or cops called on them or followed around a store, they, correct me if I'm wrong, but those are the base experiences that lead to violence, that lead to somebody getting beat up or shot or whatever. That, that's, that's part of the whole spectrum of racism. So when you don't pay attention to those everyday things, you're also ignoring, you know, the the fact of mass incarceration. You are ignoring the fact that that kids get shot in the back when they're running away from the cops because they're brown. Like you're like okay. I want to say something to all these wonderful white people who are at the protest today protesting Pence. Thank you. That's great. But I do not want you to forget when we are advocating for these immigrant children that at the root of this problem is racism okay if these were white children this would not be happening this way on the on the part of the government it wouldn't be and so you have to remember 
yes, we need to we need to get out there and we need to keep the families together and we need to advocate for these immigrant children and we need to think about immigrants, but we have to think about how this administration, everything they do has racism at the root of it. And if you are white, it is your responsibility to fight racism from the inside. Educate yourself, talk to your white friends, read, show up uh, to, to volunteer or to protest or all the things that you can do to raise your voice because it's needed. Everybody's voice is needed. Okay, do you think they heard me? I hope they heard you. I hope they heard we'll make me. Sure, we'll make sure they hear you. I can, I can count on freaking one hand how many white people speak out publicly about race. You got Tim Wise, you got Pop, you like sports, you got Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr. Um, okay, come on. There's Stan Van, else? well, the now former Piston head coach, Stan Van Gundy, he right. was very open in his disdain of yeah. Trump and, and the entire, that, that's one of the few things that endeared me to him in Detroit was that. Exactly. That, both I mean, Van Gundy's, have, really. Like, I'm like literally trolling Twitter, she knows, and like li whenever I see a white like influencer, like someone with a ton of white followers, speaking out against racism, I wrote down their name and I like, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming after you, Sarah Silverman, I'm coming after you, Glennon Doyle. Doyle. Oh, we got Matt McGorry. Matt oh, Matt McGorry counts on the good side. Yes, there are good ones out there, but I interrupt this white people roll call to head to a break real quick. And coming up after set break, Melissa and Michelle talk to us about exactly what happened in the Starbucks, what the scene was like, and how Melissa stumbled across the video that sent shockwaves throughout the country. Plus, they talk about how they plan on helping to lead people from privilege to progress. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 80th episode, episode 80 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio, and we'll be back after this. Check it out. This is JSC Radio. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kindle Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free, you can listen anytime, anywhere. Now if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows such as JSC Radio. 
You can create a custom playlist. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. You're listening to The People's Podcast. And we swagger when we walk because, by God, we can. This is JSC Radio. This is the 80th episode of The People's Podcast, Episodia Ochenta of JSC Radio. Welcome back. Jay Scott Smith here. We're going to get back to the interview with Melissa and Michelle in one second. Just want to once again take a second to thank my man Doc Gillingsworth for the music that you hear underneath you right now. want to salute each and every one of you who follows me on the Twitter machine at Jay Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O. Two T's. S-M-I-T-H. Same name on Instagram. You can follow me on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith. And I am also, of course, on jscottsmith.com. So we left off going on our white people roll call that she has, and she being Melissa, pronouns pal. We now move into the part of the interview where we really get into the meat and potatoes of this thing. We pick it up as Melissa and Michelle talk to me about what was going on in that Starbucks and how the whole scene played out. And I gotta ask the question now, how did you two come into contact with each other? How'd you two first meet each other? She actually, <laughs> Melissa actually tracked me down. I stalked her. She stalked me. <laughs> I had someone else say, hey, Melissa's looking for you. She wants to meet up with you. And I was like, oh my God, the woman that tweeted the video. Because just like the guard, the the uh, Obama staffer, that, you know, yeah. when the whole thing first happened, for a minute I was like, I her, I was like, yo, she is so down. <laughs> she is so down. We were like separated. Yes. <laughs> we met the following Monday and it was just like, she was like, we got to do something. And I'm like, absolutely. This, like this, we have an opportunity to make a difference. If we can, we should try it. If we fail, yeah. we fail. We got to try. We're already doing it. We're already like, look, it's yeah. not nearly enough. And we are very eager and anxious to get more people on board and we have lots of stuff in the works yes i got i met with um michael skolnick like a week mm-hmm. ago or two weeks ago and he's gonna help us get some white influencers mm-hmm. on board because we got heather mcgee next week we got yeah. we're talk, t- talking to heather mcgee yeah. oh i'm talking to um the woman who started pantsuit nation at okay. the end of this week and she has millions and millions of followers in her in her twitter but like just think of it that day she spoke up I listened, I amplified it, and it broke through a lot of barriers. I mean, when's the last, like, how many times are people sharing these things in these siloed, well, I'm not going to say so, just in the black and brown networks, because right. they're not they're not sharing in the white networks. What is it, 8%? 8%. A, 8% of, of white people share or post about race. And that's, that, a, that's a Pew study. That's like a legit study. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? So, come on, people. Speak up. And for years, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't post too much, because so much of my network is white. And again, it brought me back to that feeling of elementary school. Like, I don't want to post about race all the time. These white people are not going to get it. They're not going to want to see it. I'm a, I'm a Debbie Downer. And then all of a sudden, I was like, you know what? Exactly. This is my life. Exactly. Because if, 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 they're, if they think you're a Debbie Downer, the hell with it. Just do it. it. Right. 
right. And it's like, you know, you're, you know, they're tired of seeing it. We're tired of living it. If you could, like, yeah. I, I have a, I don't want to name her name, but she has a problem <laughs> <laughs> listening to the news because it's so depressing. And it's like, can, are you, first of all, how are you going to raise socially conscious children if you can't oh watch the news? But if you can't handle what's going on, imagine being in our shoes. 75% of the things that go on in, in my life, I, I don't necessarily talk about because you're, you almost just learn how to be black. Like, you just learn how to internalize those things. It's like, um, I don't think that person likes me because I'm black. And um, how someone, do you have someone, privilege and not speak up? This, right, is, the, the, this right. is what we're talking right, about, um, right? Someone's calling me in a store. Or, like, I, I don't, just, just little things that someone's rude to you and you wonder, are they racist or are they having a bad day? You, you just kind of internalize it. It's the type of thing yes. where you just you get used to it. Where get used to I it. get pulled over by a cop. Before the cop is at my window, I've already got the license and registration mm-hmm. sitting up on the dash. Because A, I'm putting it right, I, w- I just wanted to get out of the way, but B, I don't want to give him any ideas. I don't want him to think that I'm doing something. I have to, I temper how I speak. I My, yes. vo- my voice enters the room before I do. Oh, and guess what I do? Yes. I, I try to figure out how I'm going to talk my way out of it. It's a, <laughs> Actually, I, I, no, I, I do. It's the, it's, that's the thing. It's like, I'll, you figure out how to talk your way out of it, but I try to put people at ease. Yes, yes. This voice of mine intimidates people, apparently. I don't know why. Anybody who gets to know me knows... I'm not the most intimidating guy, but all they see is yeah. a six foot, 208 pound black man walk yeah. in a room with a big booming ass voice, have right. four tattoos on his arm, and I, I'm not sure if he's gonna do anything to me or not. Right. The whole, t- yeah, you may not notice the t-shirt I'm wearing likely will have Mario on it, or it's, right. or it has a PlayStation <laughs> controller on it, or I'm wearing like some old throwback Detroit Tiger shirt. Right. I am not here to cause trouble, but right. you get characterized a certain yeah. way. Now, Michelle, you went to Penn State. Mm-hmm. What was it like out at Penn State? And I'm so segregated. As a fellow Big Ten representative, and apparently we both go to schools that have had their own fair share of controversy surrounding a bunch of different things lately. I, I've wondered about what that happens because I've heard some interesting stories about Happy Valley. It was from, very segregated. I didn't actually have that great of a time, to be honest with you. I partied a lot. I drank a lot, but but like, but, but, my, <laughs> but like I made a point. Like I remember, like we would sit at our lunch table, and it'd be me, an Asian girl, a Spanish girl, and a white girl, and we would say, we'd be like, "Look at us! We are an example. We are the United Nations." You know, like I never had all white friends at Penn State, but I felt like we were like a special group because it was so segregated. I mean, I would go to parties and it'd be I'm either going to a black party or a white party. Yep. It was not. The same way it was not integrated. Same way at MSU. The only time you really saw a lot of black people, a lot of white people, everybody together was football games or basketball games. Yeah, that's it. On football Saturdays, you'd have thought it was the most inclusive place on earth in East Lansing. So you were in the Starbucks that day, Michelle. Mm -hmm. Describe what you saw firsthand as this before it goes viral. You're sitting in there and you're watching these cops cuff these two brothers up Mm -hmm. and haul them out for essentially sitting there. What did you see? What are you seeing and thinking in that moment as you're sitting there? I want to explain it from the very beginning. Go for it. I saw them walk in from my left, and I had been watching them because I thought the one guy was cute. <laughs> I'm going to be totally honest. I was like, he is really, really cute. Or I think he's too young for me, you know, like whatever. He's I will. young. I know. But they can't tell a black man. I'm like, is he 25? Is he 40? I don't know. I can relate to that. So I watched them walk up and they immediately went to the barista and said, can we use the bathroom? And she said, no, it's for paying customers only. And so they were like, oh, okay. And they sat down. 
and I saw her mouth something to herself. And my first thought was, she just said something racist. But I caught myself and I said, Michelle, you don't know she said that. Now you're being judgmental. You have no idea what she's saying. Just relax, girl. I went back and did my work. Within a few minutes, the cops were there. So I said, huh, I think my intuition was correct. I, I have learned to always, always trust my gut. And she pointed to the two men and she said that they are refusing to leave for not buying anything. And I was, so I was like, oh my gosh, this bitch is lying from the get go. She is lying right now. I'm watching her. And I look over at the, at the, the, the two brothers and they look up and they look right down. But then they look up again. And I would never forget the look on their faces. It was like, are those cops walking towards us? Hey, Dante, don't, don't get into a fight with them. Don't get into a fight with them. What did they get called for? Because there are two black guys sitting here meeting me? Yes, I didn't know they black guys. Well, what did they do? What did they do? Did someone tell me what they did? They didn't do anything. I saw the entire thing. They asked the bathroom. Is this you you can just you can see you can feel their their anxiety and so I started getting anxious immediately. I'm like, what the fuck, what the fuck? But yeah, like just just what's what's going on? Like she's I saw her lie, they didn't do anything, I know they didn't do anything, I'm watching them. So cops walk over and very quickly I got up to go film them. Cause I was like, you know what? She's lying. And I'm not, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need to at least start filming it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because at that point there were only like four black people in the whole Starbucks. And that's your voice. That, that just, yeah. When I was saying they didn't do anything. Cause I watched the whole thing. You know, there was a white guy sitting next to me for 45 minutes who didn't buy anything. I saw a white woman come in and use the bathroom. She was mid jog. I remember she was even, I think she even had purple or pink headphones. She came in, used the bathroom and she left. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if maybe she works here. Maybe she's like here all the time. And they just know her. They just like let her in and use the bathroom. I'm like, that was interesting because, you know, like those guys couldn't use the bathroom, but I saw her use the bathroom. So what's that about? And this guy next to me isn't buying anything. So like what, what is like to me, it's like, okay, this is racism. This is clearly racism. So, you know, I'm seeing them try to explain to the cops. They're not listening. I see another asshole cop walk in. He's all agitated. He's wearing the dark blue. If you're listening to me, you're wearing the dark blue. I saw you. You would just he. You could just tell that he just wanted to do something. Like they escalated the situation. They didn't buy coffees. It's a Starbucks. You can't tell me that you don't know people go into Starbucks all day and sit there. You can't tell me that. I've been that guy before. We all have. I was one of those. I mean, actually, no. I I did buy. I know I did buy a drink. But again, but like, I, I you know it happens all the time. So, um. You know, the, the Andrew walks in, their friend, and everyone's like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? I tell the girl behind me they're being arrested for not buying coffees. Like, what is going on? And then I hear people start chattering behind me. Um, and at this point now, I'm physically shaking and I'm sweating because I'm like, I need to do something. I don't know what to do. So I went up to the cop and I said, why are you arresting them? And he goes, go ask the barista. And I was like, that's an interesting answer. Why can't you answer me? But fine. So I went up to the barista and I said, why'd you call the cops? And she, her face got all red, her chest got bright red. And she was like, oh, I can't say. And I was like, well, I can say. I saw the whole thing, they didn't do anything. I said, did you feel like your life was in danger? She wouldn't look at me, she wouldn't talk to me. She just kept working behind the counter, which pissed me off. So I said it again. I said, did you feel like you were being threatened in any way, shape or form? And she would not answer me. So I walked back, 
I yelled. I don't know if I said F word or not, but I said, you're a coward. I walked back to my table and I'm packing up all my stuff to leave. And I look up and there's like a bunch of white women just standing up and staring at me. And I looked, Melissa and I like made eye contact. (laughs) And she was like, I was just here, I think the the other day. And I I, I come here all the time and I don't buy anything. And you, I'm going to ask to leave and you know why. And then we all walked out and there was a lot more commotion as we walked out. But I remember I was just, I was just shaking. Like I had a meeting later that evening and I couldn't go to the meeting because I was so pissed off. Like I like not only did I feel being black, I I, I saw it. And, and and the way the woman was just so dismissive and the way the cops were actually dismissive of me, too. Like it was like I remember the one cop goes, he was like, well, you know, you saw us. We weren't being disrespectful, were we? And I was like, you weren't necessarily being disrespectful. And I said, but do you understand that you're arresting them for not buying an effing latte? And then they turned around and they turned their backs to me because they didn't have an answer for that. And it, and then I we were, you know, were sitting outside talking to a bunch of white women and they were like, we can't believe how calm they were. We would have flipped out. And I had a nice little white privilege, um, you know, study <laughs> session that day. I was like, and you would have been able to do that because you're a white girl. And they and they, but they were all in agreement. They were like, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yep. It was it, it was it was really um, they handled themselves very well. But they had a necessity. It's to survive. It's a survival tactic. It's a thing that we, as black men, we have to do. No matter what. It's the, the, you want to get mad. You want to get angry. You want to say, dude, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. You want to do all these things. You want to get pissed off, but you want to live. And I keep hearing my dad's words in my ear. Just get home. Just get home. Don't worry. I know what they'll do to you. Just get home. He said, I'm 38 years old. My dad still says this to me. Just get home. Don't worry about anything else. Get back to the crib and let the, and and at worst case scenario, let your lawyers handle it. But get home. And that's what I can tell from watching that video. And Melissa, you you sent the tweet. Like I said, you sent the tweet seen around the world. What are you thinking when you first see this video? And then you, you retweet it, and it just goes hyper viral at that point. So the, there was a there was a, a a girl sitting next to me, and she I didn't actually video it. This other girl videoed it, and when we had all walked out, we were standing around, and I was like, somebody has to share this. Somebody has to share this, and she was like, oh well, you know, so I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. So I had no followers. I have like three hundred followers or something on Twitter because I wasn't really tweeting. And um, I'm like, well, I'm going to tweet it anyway. So I'm like writing this caption and I'm like showing, I kind of, I remember you showing it. I, Michelle, I was like, I was like, is this good? Is this good? And I was like, fuck it. I don't care. And I just, <laughs> I just, I just tweeted it. And then I was like, I was, I was, I was so mad. I was like the angry white lady. <laughs> I'm allowed to be. Exactly. Because, because we, as someone said to me recently, you are the most innocent being on earth, a white woman, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, I get called everything. I get called the white whisperer, etc. So um, I, 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 I tweeted it, and then I was like, okay, well, let me let me try to share it with. I, I tweeted it at um, Duray, and I tweeted it at Sean King. And I think Sean King was one of the first people. It took a whole 24 hours. Yeah, because I was I was in New York at the NABJ Regional Conference, and it was around the middle. It was on a Friday because yeah. it happened on a Thursday. It's middle of the day yeah. Friday, but we had heard kind of buzz coming out of Philly about it. I'm sitting in this conference room, and I look at my phone, and I scan Twitter, 
and I see the video and the first thing I do is just kind of just sit back in the chair and just shake my head. And I just immediately ask, it's like, what the hell is this? So wait, explain. So so I still can't get my, like, this is why I have to believe a lot of the reason it went so viral was because a white person was calling it out. It's because like, why, why you, if, you, if this, ha- th- 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 it is happening every day, everywhere, why have we never seen it before? I, or is it the white people haven't seen I, it before? I attribute it to, well, for one, the fact that you tweeted it helps a ton because it gave a different voice. It's almost like it allowed people to be pissed off about it instead of just dismissing it as, well, it's just black people. They're just doing this again. But when you send it out, it actually, unfortunately, lends credence to it. Exactly, which sucks. (laughs) Don't listen to me. (laughs) It lends credence to it. And yeah, we find ourselves in that position where, I've said this numerous times on various episodes of this show, that just think about what it would have been like had there been cell phone cameras and digital cameras around. I mean, the reason that Rodney King was such a big deal in 1992 was because a guy caught it on his camcorder. Right. And the shit was all over the country within 24 hours, where I'm in Detroit watching the LAPD beat this guy down, but you've heard for years and years and years that police brutality is happening. I've listened to enough of NWA and Ice Cube, and they talk about all all this different stuff is happening. But then you actually see Rodney King getting the shit kicked out of him, and it's like, wow. Now with social media, People can send out videos, but they're at the same time, well, we don't know the whole story. It's that bias that kicks in. And right. there's a bias that if I if I tweeted that thing out, it may get a couple hundred retweets. If you get, you get a white woman from Philadelphia, yeah. boom. That's middle-aged, white lady. I mean, it's like, it's like, oh, well, it must be true. What? People, listen. Don't listen to me. <laughs> well, listen to you. Yeah, but listen, listen to, to us, yeah, too. Yeah. That's white, the thing. White, white, white people, listen to me when I tell you to listen to them. And at some point, we'll get to a point where we're they actually listen to both of us at the same damn time. Listen to black women, listen to black men, listen to Latinos, listen to Asians, listen to the LGBT when they tell you that this shit is going on. Listen to white women because white women deal with their own wonderful issues. Hell, listen to some white men because apparently that's the only only motherfuckers we listen to have time. (laughs) You have to be able to do this. So after all this is going on, now the the tweet goes viral. This thing is everywhere. You got every you got every Tom, Dick, and Harry trying to hit you up, including yeah. me, trying to hit you up to contact you to find out what the hell is this, what's going on. Because that was the total talk of where we were yeah. to the point where a couple of reporters who were at this convention had to get on a train back here to Philly because shit just jumped off. So what is it on your end and for both of you? As this thing is now really taken off, and how much have your lives kind of changed really in the last six weeks? Because it's only six weeks ago. It doesn't even seem it was that. It's it, only six weeks ago. It's that about was, it's about it was six about April six. April twelfth. Yeah, it's about six eight weeks ago. So two months ago, we're two months I past will this say, thing. I, I'm getting a lot less sleep lately. A whole lot less sleep uh, because it's something that we found an opportunity and we saw it work. We saw it work. We and saw it's people still listen. working. Most of our followers on Facebook, we have like four, like about 4,000 followers on Facebook and on Twitter, and it's a lot of white people, and they're, rep- they're actually reposting our information. We need way more. Networks. I know you're out there, white people. Follow <laughs> us. Uh, it's P-R-I-V-T-O-P-R-O-G, privilege to progress. Yes. So, yes. And I have to ask this, because we live in the unfortunate age of Trump. And the MAGA people 
are not exactly the the uh, the easiest to deal with. Fuck the mega people. <laughs> that is definitely going to be in the promo. So, what kind of backlash? And pushback and trolling have you gotten from the Red Hat crew? Oh, I, I, I get it. I think she gets it more. Yeah, I've gotten it. almost nothing, which is very surprising to me. It's other white people it's that are mad at her yeah. for literally trying to but get people together. It's But we're not seeing a lot of it. And I think it's because we're coming at it from an angle of... We are just trying to educate people. Oh, I, I see it. I see it. I see it. I mean I get it. I get I get I get white people. <laughs> I get I get some super racist white people um, coming at me. I'm like I was I had them in my DM I mean they're all over everywhere. Twitter, DMs, they somehow find my email, phone I got a phone message. I mean they're crazy. But guess what? I, I got no time for you. Okay? Like really you I'm not gonna change you. I'm not gonna get you to understand or educate yourself because you know there are enough white people who are self-proclaimed liberal slash progressives who are interested enough who care enough about equality and who care about uh, racism and they, they want to get rid of it and they, they just don't know how there are enough people that if we even get just those people mm-hmm. we're in good shape you know, I don't want, like, if we're the core and if, like, your listeners are, like, the core people that are they're on board, I want that next level out, that next level of million people who might, um, and this is, like, something Sean King said to us. He's like, he's like, you know, maybe that person who puts a frowny face when they see something, uh, racism. Okay, maybe now I get them, instead of just putting the frowny face, to share it mm-hmm. <laughs> and to say something next time they see it in real life. Mm-hmm. So those are who we're going mm-hmm. for, right? Yes. You just yeah. need to be aware. Yeah. Just aware. Anyone that says that they don't see racism, no, no you do. You yeah, see, you it. see it. You don't recognize it, but you see it. Because we feel it all the time. We just don't talk about it. It was the thing that I... I, I did episode 23, which was the, the day after. It was literally, that's the title of it. The day after in 2016. And I said oh. that my biggest issue with people was not simply the out-and-out racist Trump trolls. It was those who voted for him, but then tried to insist that they weren't racist. Exactly. Members of the Ku Klux Klan, members of white supremacist groups were literally taking victory laps around the country today. Men like David Duke, and I use the term man very loosely to describe him, were cheering this victory by Donald Trump. The Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux Klan endorsed this man multiple times. They were doing robocalls for him in the South. But you're going to sit here and tell me that just because I support Trump doesn't make me racist. Yes, it does. My thing is, it's that if his racism and the racism that follows him around, like that dust, like that dust cloud that follows Pigpen. Exactly. If you look at that and you see it and it's not a deal breaker for you, I'm just going to assume you're one of them. I agree. You're just not the out and out ones. And this is a time where we need people like like you, like both of you to be able to get out there and really get out in front of this. And just saying this as a black man, greatly appreciate it because every we need every bit that we can get 
just as men and as black people, but especially speaking as a black man, as I have been one my whole life, and I've no matter what you do as a black man, you're looking over your shoulder all the time. You always wonder how how long before I quote wear out my welcome. How long before I have to go? I have to watch what I say, watch what I do. You're constantly on edge. This is vital. This is necessary. So the silence is a problem. White silence is a problem. It is a problem. And I mean, even if you're not ready, white friends, to share publicly on your Facebook, do one thing, and that is, I bet you you have one black friend. <laughs> Probably only one. <laughs> And I bet you, you have never actually asked that friend what it feels like to move through this, the, the world, this country in her skin mm-hmm. or his skin. Yeah. And I hear what people say, oh, friend. well, I don't want to ask or I don't want to offend you. No, please ask. I would love for you to ask me so I can tell you what, what I'm feeling every single day. It is so frustrating. Um, I was actually going to a, a party last summer. And I was walking in this house and I saw a white couple walking by me and they had a really cute big dog, right? And I was like, oh, your dog is so cute. And I could just, I immediately felt racism. I just, I could just feel, the, the, the woman wouldn't, she wouldn't look at me. And the guy, the man looked at her and just realized how just blatantly she was ignoring me. So he like made a couple comments, whatever. And I was like, all right, whatever, fuck them. And then my very tall, attractive friend came out of the house and he was like, oh, you know, a nice dog. And she was like, oh, da, da, da. And I was like, this bitch, are you serious? <laughs> like, like just, just, just so blatant, right? Right. And then they're chit-chatting as if I don't exist. And then, they, and I'm gonna, I was like, you know what? Let me just try one more time. Let me just, let me just say something. So I said, have a good day. And she didn't even, they didn't, she didn't turn around. She just kept walking. Like her back was to me. Jeez. You know, and then you walk in this party and you know, you're having a good time. But like, I remember I was like making a sangria or something and I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I'm, I'm freaking pissed off. You know what I mean? I'm just like, and those are the things that you just, you just hold it inside. You just hold it inside. Because again, you don't want to be that person that's like something just, you know, you don't want to be that person that's always bringing the group down. But at the same time, these things are happening to us all the time. I can tell the difference between when a man looks at me because he's attracted to me or when he looks at me because he doesn't like the color of my skin. I can feel that. I those can my, it's the microaggressions that, that, right? that people center up and deal the with all the time. And so just like in Star Wars, when people say things like, oh, well, you know, she wasn't being racist. You don't have to say the N-word to be racist. I could tell she was being racist. The second that she said something, I said, she just doesn't be racist. And I had to catch myself and say, Michelle, you don't know if she says something racist, like, you know, but then she did. So you know that you have those spidey senses and you feel it all the time. And I just want to educate people as to what is going on. And I think the problem is that they don't understand that there's different types of racism, environmental, and the healthcare, and the foods that we eat, where we live, literally, in every facet of our lives, racism plays a part in how we live in this country. People don't know that. It's they don't get an understanding of it. When I right. think of, I did a lot of work in Chicago. Cause, and yes, I know. And by the way, just a memo to some of the white people. Listen, don't, don't, don't ever say what about Chicago. Please don't. Especially don't say it to me because I've, I've, been a part, I've been a part of vigils that have been held in that city for gun violence. I've seen people mourning their children and wondering and having, having to set up neighborhood crossing guards and neighborhood watches around intersections just to keep kids from getting shot in, out there. So when someone brings up what about Chicago, don't. I might slap shit out of you if you do it. When people, you talk about racism being an institutionalized thing, 
cities like Chicago, Detroit, St. Louis, if you notice a lot of these inner cities do not have things like supermarkets or stores in them. That is one of those things. It's like food essentially treated a certain way. So you heard of food deserts in places like the west side of Chicago not having food stores or certain. The entirety of the city of Detroit didn't have a supermarket until five years ago. That's insane. When a Whole Foods opened. I mean, I went to Temple. Like, like what's up? In, what's up in North Philly, especially between Temple and, and Temple Hospital? There's nothing. There's no like food stores. There's nothing. It's it, it's amazing. So it does. It's ingrained in a lot of things, and that's yes. why it's so insulting when some of the MAGA crowd, or even some of our fellow progressives yes who may not exactly understand I'm coming for you they, they, there's a few of y'all out there too you're yes. very progressive but you just don't know shit from apple butter sometimes about black folks and it comes through in some things they say is that they don't recognize that oh you see race you see racism in everything because that's literally what we're given Talk right. to your friend, right. have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your black friend, because I'm going to argue that that person is not really your friend because you've never had this kind of conversation with them and it affects every minute of their life. Now you have, now you have kids. I do. What do you tell them about this? How do, how do they handle this? So they're right, kids, they're, the they're, they are great, great kids. They, um, right after it happened and it was so, like you said, it was like so overwhelming and, and, and I, and I, I love the, the the interview that I did. I didn't do an interview with anybody right when it happened, but I we talked. I talked to Monique at the Root, and, who I love, and she's very supportive of yes, us. Yes, she's great. And um, and then I did the WURD, and then I ended up doing some cable. So um, my I was so overwhelmed, and my my older son was like, "Mom, you know, why don't you just be done? Just like let the activists take over. You know, you did you you did it. It went out there, and I was like." I was like, look, I said, somehow, all the things that came together, that moment, you know, that it was Starbucks, that it was someone that looked like me, that it was that in the caption, that it happened to catch on, like, that made a difference. And I can't stop talking then because mm -hmm. I can feel the difference happening with every conversation. And he's like you know what, actually you're right, you're like a double agent. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, yes I am. <laughs> that is an interesting way to look at it. So yes, they're very supportive. They're, they're super supportive. It, the, I guess the last thing will be the uh, from uh, privilege to, I wanna make sure I get the name right here too, privilege to progre Pro progress. progress. I almost said progression, privilege to progress. What is the next move for privilege to progress and the goal, the eventual goal of, of your of your group here? So, um, OK, so we have a, a couple of things. Um, so we are asking um, white allies to show up by speaking out when they see something, by sharing on social media and by amplifying the voices of people of color. Okay, so and so our first, the first thing that we're doing is we're using social media to, and I said, I've been saying desegregate the conversation, but really the truth is it's not segregated because there is no conversation in the white networks. So what we're asking is for, for people to, for white people to join us in sharing and speaking up in their white networks and asking their people to share so that we can sort of infiltrate the white networks with information so that there can be a larger you know a social media conversation is only one thing but a social media conversation as we've seen yes. leads to mainstream media 
leads to what we're doing here, one-on-ones, tons of one-on-one conversations that have been happening. Um, so social media is number one. So yes, follow us. It's at P-R-I-V-T-O-P-R-O-G. Um, it's called From Privilege to Progress. You can type that in. You can look up Michelle Sahin or Melissa mm-hmm. DePino. We have links. Um, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and um, Instagram. Instagram. Yeah, And we're not even, you know, we're not asking a lot. Just come to our page and read our articles. Educate yourself. If you really want to know what's going on, if you have friends of color, read what is, what, what's, what's happening. It is all, we are in the age of information. There is no reason for anyone to not know what's going on today. It is out there. If you know the, the rappers and the, and the sport, you can read about race. You can. And just educate yourself so that when you see something, you recognize it. You can be an effective ally, but you have to be educated to be an effective ally. You have to be educated. And what, so we, we want you to follow us. We do have um, a group called, um, we have a private group that is our ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And those are those people, those core people that have already educated themselves and are 100% on board and are willing to speak out publicly. And we are deploying them to yes. then bring in other other allies to also speak out publicly. Yeah. And then we're also going to hold events. We're going yeah. to do a mass we a lot showing. Of, we have a lot of 13th. Yeah, we want to do a mass showing of 13th. Like I said, that changed my life. It changed everything everything about my life. So we really want our ambassadors to maybe try and hold like different screenings around the country. On the same day? On, on the, the same 13th. day. Yeah, we want to have panels um, going forward. We want to work with Governor Tom Wolf right now. We know we're, we're working on that. The, we're, just, we're just trying to get as many white people, as many white influencers as possible that have a lot of white followers to get out the word because we're living in a crazy time right now. Like white supremacists out of nowhere are just showing up to run for office boldly. I don't think people understand the seriousness of what boldly. is happening to this country. I don't think people really get it. There are, there's been a, a, an actual mass movement of African-Americans moving back to Africa. People don't understand how traumatizing your, your, your life can be from literally from, from the minute you are born until your entire life in this country is rooted in racism and people are sick of it. And it was okay for a minute. It was never really like okay, but with Trump, it is spewing back up. And people are literally moving out of the country. That's insane. That's insane. We shouldn't have to do that. This should be, you know, I I I try to watch my words sometimes when I'm talking about America, but it's land of the free. I can say whatever I want, right? Exactly. First Amendment is, is all in yes. effect here. And part of that is being able to criticize it. And sometimes I think like the words are just words. You can say anything, but are you living by it? No, that's not what we're doing right now. And so I think people need to understand that this country was built on racism and we need white people to help dismantle it. We need white people to help dismantle it because it it has to be dismantled from the inside, from inside the white community. It has by educating yourself, by understanding that it undergirds all the things that are wrong with our society, um, criminal justice and healthcare and education. And, and, And it affects you too. It affects all of us. And just on a purely human level, if you don't use the privilege you have to speak out for the greater good for all of us, then we're not getting anywhere. We have to work together. We have to work together. I guess one more question that just kind of popped in my head here. Have you had any contact with the gentleman in Starbucks? I got an email from um, one of them, um, from, uh, I think it was 
Dante. I can't actually I can't remember because it was so long ago. But one of them sent me an email on behalf of both of them, and um, and thanked me for sharing it. And um, he said that he was um, that they were working on some projects afterwards, and would we be involved? And I said absolutely. So um, yeah, I, I I'm in all of it. They, they they were so brave. Yeah. I mean, you know, like people say, like I mean, first of all, she was brave for speaking up that day, but. The bravery was really on their part because they sat there and they were calm. You could and they, feel you it. Could feel you, looked, you looked it. at them and you were like... You could feel it. How are you, how are you being so calm? When this is... Not only is it blatant racism, it's embarrassing. It's, it's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. Which is exactly what's happening, in, especially now with the words that... Trump is using there it's 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 now more than ever I'm not saying it wasn't always important it's always been important but now that white supremacists and blatant racists feel empowered by Trump we those who care about racial justice about social justice that care about America and care about human beings we need to be louder than they are and you have privilege which means you can be as loud as you want yeah you can you can do anything you want so use your privilege for progress for for progress yeah and we use the hashtag show up up. because there are lots of different ways you can show up um and you know anytime you're sharing show up any final words before we close this out no i just think that um like i said now is the perfect opportunity for everybody to get involved um we have the power. The people have the power. And I don't know if they realize that, but we're seeing it. You know, there are strength in numbers. So we need to work together. We need a cohesive effort. Yes, we need a cohesive effort. We need, we need other, we particularly need white influencers who have a lot of white followers to speak up in their network so that we can get the conversation flowing there too. And with that, I close this out. Thank you so much, Michelle and Melissa. I greatly appreciate your time and your hospitality. And on behalf of, of the countless other black men who've seen situations like this, to both of you, thank you for speaking out and for doing this because it is wonderful because we, we need all the help we can get as a people, let alone as black men and black women. So thank you so much for what you've done. And thank you for coming on JSC Radio. And there you have it. I can honestly say that of all the guests and all the interviews, well, conversations, because I don't do interviews, I have conversations. Of all the conversations I've had on this show, with all due respect to Adrian and Janae and Jasmine and Lara and, and Renee, that might have been my favorite one and by far the most fulfilling. Michelle Sahin and Melissa DePino are amazing women. You should definitely follow them on Twitter at Michelle Sahin. Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, Sahin with two A's, H-E-N-E. Michelle Sahin and Missy DePino, M-I-S-S-Y-D-E-P-I-N-O. Be sure to follow them and go on Facebook and look up From Privilege to Progress and get on that list. Definitely. This is a conversation we all need to be having. And yes, my Caucasian friends, it definitely involves you because, well, you're the ones who can truly get that ball rolling and make shit happen. My name is Jay Scott Smith, telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always. 
have your pet spayed or neutered. Remember to adopt and not buy. And we are out of here. I will see you next week for the 81st episode of JSC Radio. Goodbye, everybody. The MAGA people are not exactly the the, uh, the easiest to deal with. Fuck the MAGA people. <laughs> that is definitely going to be in the promo. Check it out. You're listening to the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. I heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online. For like a year, she couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.